Well, brothers and sisters, good morning. If you had the uh, privilege of hearing our brother pray uh, just a few moments ago, he really prayed the sermon in summary form, the, the text in summary form, and uh, by the end, we might all yearn for his brevity, but uh, uh, Lord, accompany us as we hear from him. We are wonderful. Uh, on behalf of our family, we are delighted to be in your presence today, uh, to be gathered uh, to worship our King, uh, the beloved of God, and uh, my wife, my dear wife, for something like 49 of 52 Sundays last year was responsible to uh, handle our children, and she's doing that work even now, so I'm grateful for her. Uh, but we're glad to be here. We're thankful to be among you, brothers and sisters. And, of course, Hunter and Sarah Coy send their love. You know that we traveled here initially to to participate and to be a part of uh, Miranda's wedding. And I asked Hunter if he'd be willing to preach today. And after he committed, I then asked if he was planning to go to the wedding. And uh, naturally, he wasn't, at least at that point. So he's he's praying, uh, preaching this morning, leading our flock at Lacrosse. So I appreciate your prayers for that, brother. Well, if you haven't already, do open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter six. Deuteronomy chapter six. I will begin reading in verse four. This is the word of our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way. When you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let us pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we pray now that you would do a work of grace that only you can do, that you would hide the man, the preacher behind the radiant glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would hold out before us to see with our eyes by faith the loveliness of Christ, your beloved Son, and the one worthy of our love. Do it, we pray, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to set the context a little bit where we're at in the book of Deuteronomy, as As you may know, the people find themselves just east of the Jordan River in the plains of Moab, and they're uh, beginning or about to begin their march westward into Canaan. And it's been about 40 years since God redeemed them or brought them out of captivity in Egypt. And now in this book, the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, the aged man, 120 years old, now gathers the children of Israel around him so as to teach them uh, about God and his word. It's something of a farewell address. And in the backdrop of Deuteronomy is the book of Numbers. Moses is speaking to 
the children who watch their parents die in the wilderness due to their unbelief. We read in Numbers chapter 14, verse 22, Because all these who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice. They certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. Throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers especially, we see the rebellion of God's people. From the moment they leave Egypt, in Exodus chapter 14, verses 11 and 12, the people feared the Egyptians and they complained about their plight. In Exodus 15.23, the people complained about their thirst. In Exodus 16.2, the people complained about their hunger. In Exodus 17, the people complained about their thirst again after the Lord had provided the first time. In Exodus 32, verse 6, the people erect a golden calf for worship. In Numbers 11, the people complain. They complain about their hunger. The spies who spy out the land return And the majority of them give a bad report of the land. There are giants. We can't conquer this land, forgetting that their strength is not in their arms, but in their God. The sober reflections of the writer of Hebrews sound like this. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And now Moses speaks to the children of those dead bodies, to young families, 20 to 30 year old families, and to their children. Now the book of Deuteronomy can be outlined in three big parts. Chapters 1 through chapter 4, act as a sort of preamble to the main body of teaching in the book. Chapters 5 through chapter 30 is the main teaching of the book of Deuteronomy with the final three chapters acting as a sort of epilogue to the book. Now, the initial portion of the teaching begins in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 22... The Ten Commandments are recapitulated or restated by Moses. The, the uh, Decalogue, the Ten Words are, are restated once again by Moses. And these are the words that were written in stone. They reflect the nature and the character of God. They define the responsibilities of the people of God. Then, after chapter 5, verses 1 through 22, Moses describes the scene as they saw it at the mountain. We read, for example, in chapter 5, verse 23, So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. So they see the burning mountain and they draw near to Moses. And the people tell Moses this, chapter 5, verse 27. You go near and hear all that the Lord God may say and tell us all that the Lord God says to you 
and we will hear it and do it. They say we will hear and we will do. There's obviously a certain presumption which may even reside in us as we consider their presumption, but there's a presumption there that they will actually hear and they will actually do what the Lord has commanded. It's very similar to what Peter says to Jesus as Jesus is uh, warning him of the kind of, uh, the, the way he might turn his back as Jesus is fixing to accomplish his work. And he says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And we read in that text that all the disciples said the same thing. We know how that story goes. Perhaps if you're one of those who makes New Year's resolutions, you might might make a presumption regarding your ability to keep a New Year's resolution. Do we have the power in and of ourselves to do the things that we say we will do? The Israelites say the right thing. It's altogether right to say to God, we will hear And we will do. But it's altogether wrong to overestimate their ability to do that right thing. Well, the Lord Lord hears their voice in chapter 5, verse 28. And then we read in chapter 6, verse 3. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Israel, you shall hear, and you shall keep to do, or be careful to do the thing that I have commanded. And then, and only then, do we come to our passage for today, which is at the very heart of the matter. This passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 has been called the Shema, which is taken from the first word in Hebrew that simply means hear or listen. These words summarize the whole duty of man to God. The ancient Israelites didn't have Bibles like we have Bibles. They never had a, an entire copy in their homes of God's Word. And so they were limited to the few scraps of papyri that they could come across and write down certain passages. So they were limited. They had to choose wisely which passages they would write down and keep in their homes. And this is one of about three passages that they would keep in their homes. And this was the primary passage. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Now, the first two verses of this passage, verses four through five, contain all of God's person and purposes in a mere 16 words of Hebrew text. All of God's person and purposes in these words. Verse four. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The people are commanded to Hear or to listen, to give ear to with an eye toward obeying what they hear. This is a word that appears over and over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, 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 listen, listen, listen. This is a word that hovers over the top of this passage. The people must first listen. Now, if we look back at Deuteronomy chapter 4, 
Beginning in verse 11, we read these words. Then you came near and stood in front of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. Verse 12. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. They heard the sound of words, but they saw no form. Only words were spoken, and these are words that they heard. And then we're told that he wrote. He wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And as we've, we've already seen in Genesis chapter 1, it is God who spoke creation into existence. Words, words are at the very center of the cosmos. Words are sewn into the fabric of the created order. In Psalm 19, it's the heavens that speak of the glory of God. And then only a few verses later, we read of the word of the Lord as pure. Words. They're to hear the words of God. Now the canvas on which this passage is painted is God's covenant with Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham we read in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and 21. It's this covenant that sort of brackets our passage for today. We read, for example, in chapter 6 verse 3, the Lord God of your fathers, of your fathers, And then more clearly in chapter 6, verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now Israel, of course, was the name assigned by God to Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham to whom God made the covenant. Now was Abraham the Gentile? that God first made His lasting covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And that covenant was built on that first foundational covenant in Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of the woman will, in fact, crush the head of the dragon. This is the backdrop of our passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In verse 4, we read these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord. If you're looking at your Bibles, most of them will use the word Lord, and it's in capital letters, capital O-R-D, Lord. This is the name of our God, Yahweh, the name He assigned, He took to Himself. In Exodus 3.14, He is The I am. He's the sovereign. He's the self-existent being. He has no beginning and no end. He simply is. He simply is. And Moses says to the people of Israel, He is our God and He is one. He's our God. That is, He's a personal being. 
Not merely transcendent, but imminent in every way. He's a personal being. There's a relationship. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But not only is He our God, He is one. He's the one to whom soul allegiance is owed. He's superior over all other so-called gods. This is what was meant by the plagues being sent on Egypt. God was conquering all other false gods and showing Himself to be the God over all nature and over all creation. The redemptive event in the Old Testament, the Exodus, wasn't primarily about Israel or Egypt. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. This is the word that the Lord spoke to Pharaoh. Indeed, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Exodus is about God, His power, His name, His superiority. He alone is worthy of worship and there is no other. And He's not merely the chief among many, but He is the One. This means that every false religion, every form of polytheism or deism or atheism or anyism, every tyranny, every expression of syncretism, any idea or new teaching or new theory, all of it, anything and anyone that would raise itself up against the sole and single superiority of the true and absolute God, all of it falls underneath the weight of two words. Yahweh, one. The Lord, one. These two words, these two words contain more truth than any philosophy book Any book on epistemology combined, any of them, there's more truth in these two words. Isaiah 45, 22, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. In verse 5, the great command is given. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God. There are three things to see about this great command. The first is that it is in fact a command. It takes all of its force from that first word, Shema, hear, O Israel, listen so as to love the Lord your God. It's to be obeyed. Now of course, To speak of obedience, especially a command to love, might sound funny to us or odd because we tend to think of love as an emotion of some kind or some kind of feeling. And we know from experience that you cannot command a feeling. You can't command an emotion. You can't make yourself feel what you don't feel. Now the message of Deuteronomy is that love for God expresses itself in obedience. The two are tied together. 
The Israelites are commanded to love the Lord, not because they feel like it, but because he is the one who is worthy of their obedience, whether or not they feel like it. To obey God is to love God, and to love God is to obey God. Love is commanding. The second thing here is that love is covenantal. You shall love the Lord your God. Yahweh, the Lord, is your God. And you shall love Him. There's a relationship that exists between the people and their God. This is why you must love Him. It's a covenantal love. Covenants are legal documents both in the Bible and in the ancient world, legal documents between usually two parties. In the ancient world, they formed these agreements for a number of reasons, but it's usually formed between kings, and sometimes the kings were equals, but oftentimes these agreements were brokered between one who was superior over the other. And when that was the case, when you had a superior figure the covenant required that the lesser of the two love the greater of the two. And love, in this sense, equaled loyalty. In these covenants, the lesser was required to love the greater with all of his heart. He was to act loyally to him. The the two tablets of stones into which the Ten Commandments were carved are a copy of covenantal terms. And now it seems most likely that they were copies, that the Ten Commandments were carved into one stone and then copied into the other stone, like you would expect with an ancient covenant, so that both parties would have a copy. But these commands are explicitly for the people of God. So what is the terms or conditions of God in this covenant relationship? Where are the copies stored? The two tablets of stone are put in the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place below the mercy seat. Below the mercy seat. God takes it upon Himself to fulfill those covenant obligations as we'll see in just a moment. Now if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 35... Through 39, we read these words. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord Himself is God. There is no other besides Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice that He might instruct you. On earth He showed you His great fire and you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. Verse 37. And because He loved your fathers... Therefore, he chose their descendants after them, and he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Note verse 37. He loved. He loved. He brought, or rather he loved, he chose, and he brought. 
He loved your fathers. He chose their descendants and he brought you out of Egypt in that order. First, love. Then election. Then redemption. The Lord initiated with his people and his initiation demands a response. God has loved you, therefore you must love God. So the love is covenantal. But the third thing we see is that the love is comprehensive. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your heart. In the Old Testament, the heart was the seat of the mind or the intellect, which included the affections. You're to love God with all of your heart and mind, all of your intellect and your affections. You're to love Him with all of your soul, that indivisible part of you, referring to the individual person, the place where you make all of your decisions. You're to love God there. You're to love God with all of your strength, all of your functions and capacities, including your property, your possessions. This word indicates muchness. You're to love Him Muchly. With all your thoughts, with all your affections, and every decision you make, with every gift you steward, this is the total allegiance required of his people. To the mind, this is an intelligent love. To the affections, it's a superlative love. To the abilities or the gifts, it's a self-denying love. Everything about a person is wholly given over to God in this love. Everything about them, visible and invisible, is required to love God. You shall love the Lord your God with an undivided, unmitigated devotion. This is not half-hearted love, but full-hearted love. Now verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God, is the grounds... Of verses 6 through 9. You shall love the Lord your God. And these words, which I command you today, shall be upon your heart. These words. These words. This is a phrase that's used in chapter 5, verse 22, just after the Ten Commandments, referring to the Ten Commandments. These words, these Ten Commandments, that phrase is used there. So these words seem to refer most immediately to the Ten Commandments, but they're summarized in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God. This is the great summary command and the summary of the Ten Commandments. And these are the words that, verse 6, shall be upon your heart or mind. You're to think carefully about these words. Like the psalmist in Psalm 1 His delight is in the commands of the Lord, and on His commands He meditates day and night. They're not called merely to know the commands of God. They're meant to understand them, to think carefully about them. The problem with legalism is not a problem of knowledge, but a problem of understanding. They're to think carefully. And the thing that they're supposed to understand is the nature and the character 
of the one who commands and has the right to do so. It's a conscious reflection. They're to meditate on the law to understand what God has commanded and why God has commanded it. The people of God aren't to surrender their minds at the point of obedience, but they're to exploit their minds. Now, this may be one reason for why we struggle to read our Old Testament, especially when we look at the legal code. We tend to look at the legal code and we see it as something distinct, perhaps, from the nature and the character of the God who gave the commands. We might know certain laws in the Old Testament, but we might not understand them. Take, for example, uh, one law that appears three times. You shall not, or you must not, or do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. Now this appears three times, more than divorce texts in the Old Testament. You shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk. And we should ask, why? What does this tell us about our God? Well, obviously... He's different than any of the so-called gods in the surrounding nations who would do such a cruel act. But more broadly, the principle is that they're not to take a thing meant for life and to turn it into an instrument of death. There's a principle there to be learned and to be applied, to be understood. Does God care that we not boil a goat in its mother's milk? Yes. What does it mean? Now, verse 7, building on verse 6, Moses tells them that they're to teach them, that is, these words, diligently to their children. As I mentioned earlier, Moses is speaking to young mothers and fathers, young parents, moms and dads who watch their own parents die in the wilderness. And they're preparing for war in Canaan. And in this passage, as they're preparing for war, Moses tells them to teach these words diligently to their children. And this is only after Moses tells them to put these words upon their heart. His command to teach them diligently to the children comes after the command to put them on their heart. If any of you have been on airplanes, you know that the stewardess will tell you that if the masks ever fall, don't put it on your child first, put it on you and then your child. This is in essence what Moses is commanding the people to do. First, you know God through His Word, and then you tell your children about this God in that order. The equipping of verse 6 prepares them for verse 7. To teach them diligently is to recite or to tell or to teach the words of God, to impress them upon your children, to not withhold the sacred body of knowledge that we've been given by our God. But teaching diligently carries the idea of sharpness or precision. It's not unlike what God did with the tablets of stone when He etched the words into the stone. It's the image of an engraver at a monument who takes the hammer and chisel in hand and with painstaking care he etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. We're to teach them diligently to our children. Parents, fathers and mothers are like archers. 
And for the arrows to work, they need to be straight and they need to be sharp. Straight so that they'll fly toward their target and sharp so that they'll pierce. Parents are to straighten the child and to put an edge on them. And it's not insignificant that the passage containing the greatest command found is in a passage discussing the family and the education of children. And one thing we learn in the Old Testament in the Bible is that God cares far more about the next generation and the generation after that than we do. He cares. Fathers are to teach their children and their grandchildren. Grandfathers teaching their grandchildren. We see it in the life of Timothy's grandmother and mother. The multi-generational effects of a devotion to God. Now there's work that's required to, say, grow a garden. But you don't have to do anything to cultivate weeds. Weeds will grow without cultivation. But if you want to grow a garden, it requires hard, diligent labor. And this is the kind of work that God commands of moms and dads. And we need to hear a basic assumption that Moses has in this passage, which is that the doctrine of God, every truth concerning God, everything that the people have been taught concerning His character and His commands, all of those things are not beyond any parent to both learn and to teach to their child. The parent is God's mean to teaching the children. They've been assigned to that particular task. And we could say that one word of truth from a mom and a dad to their child is worth a thousand words from a pulpit. Parents are charged to teach their children. Many of you have heard the name John Patton or Peyton, who was a 19th century missionary to the islands in the South Pacific, and he wrote often and frequently of his dad. His dad was a godly man. His dad loved the church. His dad was devoted to using and stewarding the Lord's Day for the spiritual benefit of the family. The closest church to their home didn't teach sound doctrine, so they would walk every Lord's Day four miles to a church farther away so that Patton and his children could hear godly teaching. John says that in 40 years, his father missed worship three times. In 40 years, once for a snowstorm, once for an ice storm, and once because of an outbreak of cholera. Every morning and evening, the father would lead the family in worship at the home. And this is what John remembers from those occasions. He writes, how much my father's prayers at that time impressed me, I can never explain. Nor could any stranger understand. When on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for every personal and domestic need. We all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and to love him as our divine friend. As we rose from our knees, I used to look at the light of my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit. This is ordinary household godliness that's straight out of Deuteronomy 6. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
Also in verse 7, you shall talk of them. These words, after they're heard, after they're understood, are to be spoken of. They're supposed to be the talk of the town. The Bible knows nothing of private religion. And that's, that's for both Christians and non-Christians. Every, everyone that lives in the world lives according to what they believe about the world. And the danger for Christians, perhaps one danger for Christians, is that we live a life of practical deism. God is transcendent. He's all-powerful. He's all-sovereign. But is He there when you wake up in the morning? Do you meet with Him? Is He at work in the world? What's He doing right now? The Bible tells us some hints of what He's doing more broadly. He's putting all of His enemies under His feet. He's calling people from the ends of the world into fellowship with Him. But there's a weight that I feel for Christians who are prone to this practical deism. Faithfulness to the God of the Bible is necessarily public. It must be public. Whether we sit or walk, verse 7, that is wherever they go, when we lie down and when we rise up, whenever they go, wherever they go, whenever they go, talk of God. Talk about Him. In verse 8, they're told to bind them as a sign on their hand and they shall be as frontlets between their eyes. They're to bind words as a sign on their hand and that those words are to be as frontlets between their eyes. And this is a very strange thing. Is it literal or is it metaphorical? And we have record of those who took this passage very literally and had boxes on their foreheads with passages, little scrolls in the boxes. Is it literal or is it metaphorical? Well, if we look at chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, we read these words. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure. They saw no form. That is, their eyes saw no form. And they're told not to make for themselves a carved image. They're not to use their hands to craft a false god, a carved image. And one of the great sins, perhaps the great sin of the people was making, erecting the golden calf in Exodus 32. And we're told in that passage that Aaron made, crafted with his hands, the molded calf. And then when he saw it with his eyes, he built an altar before it. Think worship. The eyes and the hands are especially susceptible to vain uses. So the first two commandments given are you shall not ha- you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Instead of other gods or carved images, they're to bind words as a sign on their hands. They're to place words as an emblem between their eyes. They're to guard their hands and their eyes with words, with the words of God. Verse 9, and you shall write them upon the doorpost of your homes and upon your gates. 
You're to be adorned by the words of God and your house is to be decorated by the words of God. When people see you, when they visit you, when they pass by, they're to be distracted by the words of God. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God. This this is the great command that's laid before the people. They must love their God, but there's a problem and Moses knows it. Throughout Deuteronomy, Moses calls the people to love and to obedience, to serve their God, to worship Him, only to tell them in what I would imagine to be very sober words from a scarred old man who's walked with a stubborn people, and he himself a very flawed man, perhaps peering into his own heart, that in the end they will turn from their God. Listen to these words, but you're not going to listen To these words, how heartbroken this man must have been as he stood before this people to tell them those words. The demand to love God cannot be met without a circumcised heart. Moses, only after pleading, pleading with the people to serve and to love and to worship and to obey the God of all glory, tells them they will turn. Chapter 30, verse 6, Moses holds out. Hope for the people. A work of grace. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. And the Lord your God shall circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul for your life's sake. A circumcised heart is a believing heart. And a believing heart is a loving heart, which means an uncircumcised heart is an unbelieving heart. And the people had uncircumcised hearts. Now, as that relates to the law, the unbelieving heart can do positively two things. If you have an unbelieving heart, I'm here to tell you there are two things that you can do. The first is that you can misunderstand the law. You can see, you can love the law as or by legalism. So you can misunderstand the law, or if you have an unbelieving heart, you can find the law intolerable. You can hate the law by a rebellion. So if you have an unbelieving heart, you can love the law by legalism, or you can hate the law by rebellion, and both of these come from a heart of unbelief. But a believing heart, a believing heart experiences a glorious intensification of love. Rather than a love by legalism, it sees Christ in and through the law. Now, as I just said, Moses in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, holds out hope for the people, and the hope is not that they'll love God, but that God will circumcise their hearts so that they will love God. The hope is that God will do a work. And around 1,500 years later, the Apostle Paul, having so evidently meditated on Deuteronomy chapter 30, writes these words in Romans chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone 
who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does these things shall live by them, but the righteousness of faith speaks this way, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 30. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? And then he quotes, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You're to confess with your mouth. And what are you to confess? That Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, that the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and that day it shall be the Lord is one, and His name one. We hail King Jesus and no other. He's our king. And you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. All that we've talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 6 was fulfilled by one man. Jesus is the only one to have ever loved the Lord God with all of His heart, with all of His soul, with all of His strength, and He was crucified in order that we might be made lovers of God. We know that the Apostle John, the Apostle of love, wrote that his whole gospel had a single purpose in mind, that you may believe. And we read in John chapter 3, verse 16, For in this way God loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent His Son to satisfy His wrath. John chapters 13 through 17, as you approach those chapters, make a wonderful commentary on Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 15, we read, If you love me, Jesus speaking, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Love for Jesus is tethered to obedience, and this is so freeing. Because it means that even if you don't feel like it, you can love him. You can love Him. His commandments are not a burden to us. John chapter 14, verse 21, The one who has my commandments and keeps them, that one is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. John chapter 14, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him and will take up residence with him, referring to the Spirit that will fill his people. Here we read of the triune God at work in the soul of every Christian. 
John 14, 24, the one who does not love me does not keep my words. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and remain in his love. Our obedience is tethered to Christ's obedience. He obeyed his father. Jesus gave us a new commandment in John chapter 13. This means that Jesus, as God, is law-giver in addition to law-fulfiller. And He gave a new commandment in John chapter 13, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Even as I have loved you. How has Christ loved us? He's laid down His life for us. He sacrificed Himself for us. That's how we're to love one another. And this is precisely where John's first letter picks up. He's concerned that the people will not love one another as Christ has loved them, that they're missing it. There's dissension, there's fracturing, there's sin. I'd encourage you, if you have some time, either this afternoon or this week, to read 1 John in its entirety with a membership directory nearby and pray and ask God, to give you Christ's love for your brothers and sisters. To love them well as Christ has so loved you. Why is love for the Lord the greatest commandment? Why is love for the Lord the greatest commandment? Paul told us it's the greatest in 1 Corinthians 13. He told us love never ends. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ in love. Why is love for the Lord the greatest commandment? Love is that fixed, eternal rule. The Apostle John in 1 John 4.8 God is love. In the Godhead, we see the lover, the beloved, and the spirit of love between them in the three persons of the Trinity. And in salvation, it's that love that's poured out into the heart of every believer by that spirit of love. We'll finish with these final words. These are the last words Jesus spoke before he was arrested in the Gospel of John. Chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. Hear the prayer of our King. Father, those whom you have given to me, I want that those also may be with me where I am, in order that they may see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, Although the world does not know you, yet I have known you, and these have come to know that you sent me. And I made known to them your name, and will make it known, in order that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I may be in them. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life and took it up. Who obeyed perfectly the law that you'd given in Deuteronomy 6 such that we might be brought into fellowship and enabled to obey such things. We pray, Lord, that you turn our eyes to Jesus. 
May you fill us with a love for him and a love for one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.